That is the 27th Psalm, and that is our text this morning, so I would you would turn to that 27th Psalm, and I want to read verses 1 through 5. However, the entire Psalm is the text, and I'll be referring to it as we make our way um, through this sermon. The Lord is, the light, is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense, the strength of my life, whom shall I dread? When evildoers come upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. For in the day of trouble He will conceal me in His tabernacle. In the secret place of His tent He will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. A number of years ago, when West Texas was being scorched in the greatest drought of its history, in a little small town weekly newspaper, the editor called on the people to pray for rain. And the gist of the article was, things are so desperate, it's time to turn to prayer. You know, uh, I hate to... I hate it because we've gotten this bad, you know. But, but it's time, you know, we're desperate enough that we need to pray. It's terrible that we have to resort to something like this. But we're, we've, uh, we've tried everything else, so we need to pray. It's kind of like, uh, it's, uh, you know, let's give God a shot at it. It won't hurt anything. We've tried everything else. All it'll cost us is a little time. Somebody said he saw a sign on the walls of a school building that said, in case of an earthquake, the ruling against prayer is temporarily suspended. Now, now for some of us, we have, we have um, just kind of forgotten about prayer, but under certain conditions, that ruling is suspended. That's what makes the 27th Psalm so exciting, because it is the strategy that a man developed to deal with life's problems. And in order to live the victorious life, a man needs a strategy with which he can deal with the problems, the troubles of life. And as I read the 27th Psalm, I'm impressed with the process this man works through to a redemptive solution to his problems. You may need to jot these down, as a matter of fact. This is not the sermon. But really this is the process through which each one of us must go as we work our way through problems to a redemptive conclusion. First of all, there is panic. Now, what am I going to do? What's going to happen to me? Then there is perspective. He got a, a perspective on the problem that was objective, unique. And then there is power. He linked himself up to a power outside of himself. And then there is peace. And so as a person works through his problems, he works through the same normal process of panic, perspective, power, and peace. Realize
really problems are indicators. And our life is filled with indicators. Pain is an indicator that there's something wrong with your body. Depression is an indicator that our emotional system is overloaded and we need to get back to volitional choices. Life is filled with indicators. Somebody said that he tried out one of these cars that's, that talks. And he said in a certain spot on the gas gauge, this little seductive voice comes on and says, Okay, big fellow, or something like that. You've got just a little bit, you've got so many more miles that you can travel at this mile per hour, and before you run out of gas, you better get some gasoline. Our life is filled with indicators, and problems are indicators. They are indicators of our desperate need for God. Can you imagine what life would be, at, would be like without problems? You say, oh, if it could only be that way. But really, that might not be so great, for problems are indicators of our desperate need for God. And without problems or trouble in life, we might get so arrogant and self-sufficient and independent that we'd never think about God. Problems are an indicator that we have a desperate need for God. Now I need to say three things in a general sense, general way about problems before I work on this text with you. The first thing I need to say is that problems are a natural process, are a natural part of the process of life. Life really is a neutral experience. Jesus said it rains on the just and the unjust. So the real issue is not who has a problem and who is exempt from a problem. The real issue is what is my interpretation of the problem and how do I respond to it? The second general statement is this, that you will never reach a plateau that is problem-free. Our rationale is that if I can just live the kind of faith life and walk with God, that I'll rise to a problem-free plateau in life. There's no such thing as a problem-free life. Now, this psalmist comes to work out a strategy to deal with the problems of life in order that he might live life abundantly. And the first aspect of this strategy is this. He recognizes the powerful provisions that God makes to life. The powerful provisions that God makes. Verses 1 and 2 describe those provisions. And he says four things about the provisions that God makes to life. First of all, he says that God gives guidance. The Lord is my light, he said. That is, God illuminates the path. And the illumination that God makes upon the path of life is progressive on the basis of our obedience. For example, you've heard the story of a father who sent his son down to the barn to do an errand, and it was dark, and the little boy said, Well, I'm afraid, Dad, of the dark. He said, Well, take the light, take the lantern. He said, Well, I can't see all the way in the dark to the barn. He said, How far can you see? He said, I can see to the current bush. He said, well, go to the current bush. When he got to the current bush, his father called out, how far can you see now, son? He said, I can see to the well house. He said, go to the well house. When he got to the well house, his father called, how far can you see now, son? He said, I can see to the barn fence. He said, go to the barn fence. When he got to the barn fence, the father called, how far can you see now? He said, I can see to the barn. He said, go to the barn. 
The question is this morning, the question is this, are you going as far as you have illumination to travel? For God gives illumination to life on the basis of our obedience to the light we have. He gives guidance. And He gives deliverance. The Lord is my salvation. And that word does not mean salvation redemptively from sin. The Hebrew means He gives deliverance. So that He gives deliverance in trouble and from trouble. Now I need to remind us that the deliverance of God is providential. Sometimes the way He delivers us from trouble is that He gives us a new attitude toward it. So that Alexander Solzhenitsyn could say on a rotting bed of straw in a Russian prison cell, Bless you prison for having come into my life. And sometimes He gives strength to endure the trouble, and sometimes He enables us to work through it. But the providence of God is that He gives deliverance from and in the trouble. Third, He gives strength. The Lord is my, light, my, my defense, the strength of my life, the strength of my life. Now there are two words in the Bible for strength. One is a providential, godly kind of strength, and the other is a humanistic kind of strength. The strength he uses here, the word is translated in the American Standard, defense, is the godly kind of strength. And it is, watch this, it is the strength with which God relates to the world. It is the strength with which He created the universe, and it is the strength with which He raised Jesus from the dead. So the psalmist is saying, that God gives us the same strength with which He relates to the world. It, it means that, God, that we don't live on the basis of a lower level or lower amount or kind of strength. We live our life out in the strength of God. That's why Paul was saying that I can do all things through Christ who pours His strength into me so that God makes available to us in provision His own strength to relate to life. And he says, fourthly, that God gives protection. When my enemies came against me, they stumbled and fell. Now the second aspect of this strategy for dealing with life is this. It was the psalmist's reaction when he discovered who God was and what God made available to him. His reaction to that. And he said, when I discovered who God is and what He does for me in trouble it resulted in two things. The first thing it did for me was that all my fears disappeared. He said, though a host, an army, come against me individually, I will not fear. I've often thought how terrifying it must be to go to war. My brother was 18 years old when he was drafted into the army. It was 19 when he invaded with others Normandy on D-Day. I can just imagine how frightening that must have been to a 19-year-old boy. As a matter of fact, I read some of the letters that he sent out, sent to my parents, censored letters from the time that immediately preceded that horrible invasion, and you could just sense the fear that was in that young guy. Can you imagine what it must have been like as those boys prepared to land on Normandy beaches and just seeing the assault there and all those soldiers just being cut down. And yet he had all of the military 
might of, of the United States behind him and the soldiers with him, the air support and the naval support and the ground support. And the psalmist was saying, Though a whole army come against just me, my fear level is zero. Amazing thought. Psychologists tell us that people are motivated by fear more than any other emotion. As a matter of fact, our culture is so riddled by fear that we have developed a whole vocabulary for the word. The base word is phobia. And you know, there are 75 different phobias that lead to paranoia. Some of you are, suffer from claustrophobia, and some of you from acrophobia, and I, I suppose that the ultimate is phobophobia, which is the fear of, of fear itself, literally. You know what that word means? It means the fear of life. You know, there are folks who are absolutely terrified by life and everything that's in it. I read of a man in Chicago who was so afraid of life that he had not been outside of his house for 15 years. He lost his family, he lost his job, he lost everything important to him. And a therapist would come to his house once a week and try to help him through his fear. And finally, one day, the guy got up enough nerve to leave the house. He went outside the house, down the sidewalk, and picked up his newspaper that was lying there, and he told his therapist later, he said, I left the door open and backed down the sidewalk in case I became so frightened I wouldn't want to take the time to run, turn around to dash back in the house. Now that's fear. The psalmist said, when I discovered who God is and what God does, my fears disappeared. It was in that atmosphere that a teenage boy could go against Goliath it was in that atmosphere that Moses, who stammered when he talked, marched into the den of Pharaoh and announced, let my people go. It was in that atmosphere that Jesus went to the cross, knowing who God is, I have fear of no man. Most of the time, our fears are for something that will never come to pass. You've read the work, some of you, of Thomas Carlyle. He had to write in absolute silence, and so he built a room outside of his house, soundproof. The only thing he could hear in that when he was in that room writing was his neighbor's rooster crowing. Drove him crazy. And finally one day he went to his neighbor to complain about his rooster crowing. And he said, well, my goodness, or something like that. He said, my rooster crows just a couple of times once a day. And Thomas Carlyle said, yes, but you just don't know how agonizing it is to wait and, and, and wonder when that rooster's going to crow. Some of us live in agonizing terror, waiting for roosters that never crow. And the psalmist said, I discovered who God is, and all my fear disappeared. Amazing thought. Secondly, he said, when I discovered who and what God is, there began to be in my heart a longing for God. I, he said, I want one thing, and that is that I might dwell in the house of God forever. Now, to long for God is the natural result of our discovery of God. Most of the time, we try to conjure up a feeling for God that we don't really have. We want to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and strength like the commandment. 
And so we really try, we really do, we try our best to really have a heart for God, but having a heart for God is not something that you conjure up. It is the natural longing and result of knowing God. Not knowing about Him, but knowing Him. I gained a new perspective on the beatitude, Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. I think what Jesus was saying is that God wants us to long for Him as much as He longs for us. When I was going into my freshman year, there was this girl moved into town. Her name was Margaret Yandale, prettiest thing I've ever seen. I'll tell you what, she came into the grocery store where I was working on Saturday afternoon, and my heart did a flip-flop. I mean, my pulse raced out of control. I thought she was the prettiest thing it ever was. But, but I was, this going to surprise some of you, I used to be very bashful and shy, so I, just, I never could get up enough nerve to ask her out. But I wanted to so bad. Man, to have a date with her had to be the greatest thing in the whole wide world. And she started going with somebody else. I mean, she went with some of the... You talk about darks. And I, and I, and I, 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 would, I, would, I would look in the mirror in the morning, you know, and at night, and I'd say, now why would she want to go with anybody but me? I, you, know what, you know what I was doing? I was longing for her to long for me. Isn't it amazing that somewhere, somewhere, God longs for you this morning. And He wants you to long for Him as much as He longs for you. And the psalmist said, you know, that worked out, really. Uh, Margaret, you know, became Margaret Tidwell. That, that worked, you know how that worked out? She got to know me. Found out what a great guy I was, you see, and, and, uh, and, and discovered the, the uh, you know, the, the, the pearl of great price. Discovered it, uh, you know, so what, what happens is that when a man discovers what God is, who God is, he begins to long for God as much as God longs for him. There's a third strategy, part of this strategy is this. It's, it's the challenge that God gives in the time of trouble. Verse 8. Now, I didn't read that a while ago, so I want to read it now. When thou didst say, Seek my face, my heart said to thee, Thy face, Lord, I will seek. Now, this is the challenge. In time of trouble, you're developing a strategy to, to deal with life. Seek my face. Now, I have a lot of friends that are kind of like Job's friends. My friends tell me about what I need more. For example, they'll say to me sometime, uh, Gerald, you need more patience. You need, to, you need more patience. Or they'll say to me, you just need more time. Time is what you need. But you know, I've discovered that, that the things that are, you know, time makes the things that are good better and time makes the things that are bad worse. You know, that doesn't always work out. Sometimes if they really want to incriminate me, they say this to me, you need more faith. That'll knock you dead. You just need more faith. You just need to know how to lay, you know, trust God. You, you need more faith. If you just had, you remember what Jesus said, they'll say, if you had the faith of a grain of mustard, they really know how to nail me. You just need more faith. But you know what the psalmist said? He said, I need more God. He didn't say you need more patience. You need more time. He'll say you need more faith. 
He said, you need more of me. Seek my face. And when you seek his face, when you seek him, when you get him, then you get faith. It's easy to trust God when you know God. It's easy to have a different perspective on time when you have his face. It's easy to have a greater, it's easy to have a, a deeper and more realistic concept of, uh, uh, of patience or an ability to endure when you know God. He's saying, if you've got a problem in life, the answer to that problem is me. Seek me. What he's saying in essence is, all you need to do or what you need to do in the midst of life is to direct your desires to him. One last thought. In this strategy for, for dealing with life, perhaps the most important is this, is one's response of faith to the gift of God. Now let me show you what verses 13 and 14 say. Look here. He said, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now, I was doing my quiet time one morning, and I don't even remember when, it, when I did this, but I put out in the, in the margin right there, I put, it's not the seeing that counts, it's the believing. He didn't say, I would have despaired if I had not seen the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He said, I would have despaired if I had not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Jesus said, if you believe that you have it, you'll have it. So that the psalmist said, in the midst of the trouble, I believe, I believe that I'll see God's goodness expressed in the land of disappointment and mystery and sin and weakness, the land of the living. I believe I'll see the goodness of the Lord. Now, a literal translation of this, this verse is this. Catch this. I would have lost all faith if I did not believe that God was good. Now, I can parade on this platform this morning scores of people who would stand here and testify I came to a point in my life where I would have chunked it all and gone to the house. I would have given up, but I believed in the goodness of God and that kept me going. I believe in God. On the walls of a Nazi prison camp, these words were inscribed. I believe in the sun when I cannot see it shining. I believe in love when I cannot feel the warmth of its presence. And I believe in God when God is silent. I can add one line to that. I believe in the goodness of God when I can't see it. When darkness seems to hide His face, I'll rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. I believe that God is good. Now what I see in life as my life is riddled by trouble from time to time is, is no evidence of any goodness at all. What I see is pain and heartache. And when I put my hand on people's wrist and feel the pulse of their sorrow, I wonder sometimes and I have to come back to the realization that I know God is good. And one of the most impressive sights I've ever seen, I saw in a little church up in the northwest, and this young mother had a little boy in her arms. He must have been eight or nine years old. 
severe brain damage and retardation. And she had a big old cloth, kind of like a towel, that she carried over her shoulder, and she would wipe the drool. He just drooled all the time, his tongue out. And she stood there and held that little boy while the rest of us sang, and she sang along with this angelic face. God is so good. God is so good. God is so good to me. Can you see Jesus prostrate on the ground, blood upon His brow, and He's anticipating the potentiality of the cross. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from Me. Can you hear Him in agonizing suffering in the darkness of, of the cross hour? My God, why? Then can you hear Him in that gentle goodnight prayer of a little Jewish boy, Father, into Thy hands I commend My spirit. How could He pray that at the end of that suffering? He believed in the goodness of God. Now the psalmist said, I believe that God is good, and the result of that faith is fourfold. I'll mention them that I'm through. Because of that, verses 13 and 14, He said, I've learned how to wait. I've learned how to wait. Now that word wait does not refer to a guy sitting beside the road hoping somebody will come by in a tow truck and help him. It's the the weight of a farmer who tills his ground and plants the seed and cultivates it and then waits expectantly for the harvest. Yes, God puts His blessing upon us, but we must put ourselves in a position to be blessed. And the psalmist said, because of my discovery of who God is and what God is and my response to His challenge, I'll seek your face. I wait like a farmer expectantly for the harvest to come. What a beautiful thought. He said, because of my understanding of His goodness, I'm facing life courageously. If God is for us, who can be against us? And because of my belief that God is good, I'm trusting in God's timing. We may never see His goodness in the land of the living. One of the greatest examples of faith is Joseph. God said to him, This child that Mary's conceived is of the Holy Spirit. This is Messiah. Joseph never saw that reality except from the battlements of heaven. Now Mary knew she was pregnant. didn't take her long to discover that. And she knew that she had been conceived by the Holy Spirit because she knew she had not slept with a man. But Joseph never knew the realization of that promise because every indication of Scripture is that he died before Jesus embarked on the Messianic work. And when you read the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, it gives that roll call of faith. And and at the end of that roll call of faith, it, it says, And none of these received the promise, having died before the promise. Abraham, God said, come on, I will show you a city not made with hands. He never saw that. But the psalmist said, when I'm convinced that God is good, I'm able to do it on God's timing. I won't have to see it today. I'll see it tomorrow. Then he said, because I'm convinced that God is good, I'm anticipating God's intervention. One of these days I'm going to wake up and God, He's going to be in the midst of my trouble and He's going to take it over. Somebody said or told about a woman who lived her life away from God. She was anti-God in every way. Raised her kids. One day she walked away from a hospital where she had just learned her child had been killed in an accident. Her daughter 
And she went home to the darkness of her house alone. She told the story. She said, I walked in the house, locked the door, and cursed God. And she said, I knew how to curse. She said, I used every word that I could think of, and I cursed God. And when I finished cursing God, I heard this still, small voice say, That's the first time you've ever spoken to me. Child, I love you. Isn't it always true that in the midst of the trouble of life, when the foundation is shaken and we are at the point of despair and and to the point of cursing God, there always seems to be that intervening voice that says, I love you. Because God is by nature good. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you'll not necessarily deliver us from trouble, but give us a way to relate to it that is fitting, that is that is in concert with your people and your will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, I pray, and for his sake.